Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Our world is filled with many different threats and we often turn to the animal kingdom to help understand how to deal with them. For example, what happens when the climates change? How do frogs adapt? That can help us learn how animals as well might change. Plus, we find out how Chicago would fare in a zombie apocalypse. Plus, what animals we are really hardwired to detect amongst the random noise. Just how long do you think that you would last in a zombie apocalypse? Now, this is a problem that has perplexed many, many people across the world including those that formulate grand plans which involve going to hardware stores, stocking up on the off-grid essentials, making their own water supplies, or just finding a way to hide away from everybody else. Everyone has their own personal preferences and choices around what they think is best. When it comes to mathematicians, particularly researchers from the Argonne National Laboratory in Chicago, based out of the University of Chicago in the United States, in Illinois, they found that, well... No matter what plan you have, just based on the numbers alone, perhaps you'd last only about 60 days. So to take a step back, let's look at what exactly these researchers did. Now, infectious disease is a huge problem, and we talk about zombie invasions and zombie infections as a joke, but in reality, they actually possess some good insights to how we would behave in other plague or large pandemic situations, which when we think about things like Ebola or MRSA or avian flu, our world is actually susceptible to large-scale pandemics. And these pandemics can wipe out large numbers of people. And when this happens, is a very unusual spread pattern of behavior. You only have to look at something like Zika and to see the way that that has spread across the world from its starting points in Latin America all the way to the far reaches of the corners of the world to understand just how infectious disease may or may not spread and the impacts that it might have in our interconnected and global world. So to study this in detail and to get an insight on how to better tackle and treat diseases, the Argonne National Laboratory mathematicians actually modelled a whole bunch of different types of infections and then use the data from real infections, understand the weights of transmissions and the vectors or pathways of transmissions to build a model for how long it would take, for example, a zombie outbreak to fully infect a city like Chicago. Now at its core, this analysis relies on a model called Chi-SIM, which is basically the Chicago simulation. And it's an agent-based model method which means that instead of approximating large groups of people to clusters, this instead models each individual agent inside the scenario. And in Chicago's case, that's about 3 million citizens. And then it also represented about 2 million locations scattered around a virtual map of the city. And then using these 3 million agents, as well as these all these varying locations, they can build a model that it includes encountering other people and, occasionally, transmitting the disease. This is very, very important for diseases like Ebola or flu, which often involve transmission through human hosts. Zika is a bit more complicated because it can be transmitted through human hosts, but also by other vectors such as mosquitoes. So you need even more things to be included in your model in that point. 
And now, the unfortunate news is that based on the research data collected and the model, it would only take about 60 days for the 2 million Chicagoans to be infected or zombified. But when you start adding in various other controls, like the people themselves fighting back, but or clustering or avoiding other areas based on instructions from city officials, then the model starts to improve somewhat and the results are less dire. And this sort of goes into the whole point of a model like this. It's fun to talk about how zombie invasions may work, but it's more important to make sure that we have good strategies in place from a public health perspective to tackle actual outbreaks of dangerous diseases that could harm people, such as flu pandemics, which are a real threat. So next time you're thinking you're wondering about how zombie invasions and zombie apocalypses may work, don't worry, the scientists are on it and they do have plans and our health authorities do have ideas and thoughts behind how to tackle everything from pandemics and flus to, yes, perhaps even zombie apocalypses. A zombie apocalypse is a potential, very small and probably unrealistic potential apocalypse, but there are other ones that are much, much more likely. And for example, climate change is pretty much the greatest challenge of our generation, no matter which way you slice it. And it's very interesting to study the behaviours of animals to changing climates, because our world is changing, and temperatures are increasing, and our ocean sea levels rising. And whether we like it or not, we have to adapt. And animals are already doing this in a variety of different ways. And by studying them, we can actually learn a lot about ways to adapt ourselves and what it might mean in terms of changes in our planet's ecosystem for the rest of the animals out there. And so researchers from the University of Lisbon in Portugal and Uppsala University in Sweden have been studying a variety of amphibians in the Iberian, the Spanish-Portuguese region, peninsula in Europe. And basically, they've been looking at the European tree frog, the Mediterranean tree frog, and the Iberian painted frog. And they've been studying what exactly happens when heat waves or rapid increases in temperature strike these small populations of frogs. And from this, the idea is to try and learn well, what exactly happens and how do these small amphibians adapt to this changing circumstance. Interestingly, Amphibians are effectively one of the most sensitive animals to changes in the climate because they have a highly permeable skin and a very, very complex life cycle, which involves an aquatic, as a lava stage, and a land stage. So they're very dependent on changes in the amount of water, and any changes in temperature often leads to variations in available water, which can make life difficult for these frogs. So what they did at these various universities expose different kinds of lava of these three species to simulated, or in laboratory anyway, heat waves, which varied in duration and intensity. And they did this also by increasing the water in which these lava were growing. And basically the lava were kept in three different types of conditions. And what they observed was very, very interesting. These different conditions were an area where they had solely vegetable-based diet, one with an animal-based or a mixed diet, and the third allowed them to sort of pick and choose what they'd want. Now, the end results of this study 
showed species that were basically very tied to the conditions required for their reproductive cycle. For example, the painted frog, which only reproduces when it's cold, and it mostly has a carnivorous diet, whereas the Mediterranean tree frog, which produces when it's hot and wet, maintains a vegetarian diet. So what they found, though, very interestingly, is that these different frogs, even in the larva stage, have flexible dietary habits. Now, when it got hot and difficult in these simulated heat waves, these frogs turned to vegetarianism to help get enough energy to survive relatively efficiently and cheaply. And the animals that turned to this vegetarian diet managed to survive in greater numbers. And it shows a lot of different things about the strategies taken by animals to adapt to different heat conditions, which ultimately will play a large role in helping us study from different animals themselves. very fortunate. We live in a world, aside from ourselves, free of predators, things that aren't going to eat us or do us great harm. Our biggest dangers often lies from other humans, and that isn't another problem. But from a biological perspective, it means we're devoid of prey creatures. But deep inside us, from our biological systems, our senses, and other mechanisms inside our bodies, we are hardwired to avoid threats to our existence. And these date back from times when we did have prey around us, animals that could harm us and kill us quite easily. And we've carried these legacies genetically with us through our lives. And researchers from Nagoya University in Japan have been looking at the prevalence or ability of the human visual system to easily detect potential predators in otherwise random noise images. So these researchers took, well, random image structure evolution, or they call the RISE method, and it's basically a big noisy piece of imagery. And over the top of that filter, they have underneath lying a picture of a predator. And over time, as they decrease or increase the noise filtering of this thing, the picture becomes more and more apparent. And they can do different studies based on human perception about when people actually pick up the threat or the object inside this noise. And what they've found when they studied a series of images, including snakes, birds, cats, fish, and a bunch of other objects, they found that the thing that we picked up the most easily out of this random sea of noise was actually pictures of snakes. We were able to identify snakes much faster than any other type of animal. So the way the test works is they basically have 20 different sequential images of slightly progressively more filtered or less noisy images. And we picked up snakes very early on in the piece at about the six to eight point progression down the 20 image chain. Whereas with other objects or animals, we need nine, 10, or even more to be able to identify exactly what object was hidden in this noise. Obviously, by the time you get to 20, it's pretty clear what the object actually is. And this makes sense, given that snakes are a pretty big threat for humans. Even primates, back in the early forms of humanity when we're living in trees, where snakes are around or hanging around on the ground. And it makes sense that we have tuned into our sensory systems ways of identifying potential threats hiding 
amongst camouflage, such as leaves or other distortion. And this just goes to show that what we carry with us now may not be exactly useful in your everyday suburban life, but it really helped your predecessors on the evolutionary journey to get to that point. And it's useful to understand where exactly our strengths and weaknesses are in our sensory systems, so we can help improve them and understand them more in the future. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. Humans being hardwired to detect snakes amongst the noise, plus how Chicago fared in a zombie apocalypse, spoiler alert, not well, and how animals like frogs adapt to climate change. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.